0: since we have um, two new bickers in the community and um, although they're com- not completely new because they've been with us as Samaneras and, and Garakas but we also have new Samanera joining us from New Zealand um, it seems like it would be good to clarify again or for the sake of clarification just to talk over the um, Understanding we might have of training, monastic training, perhaps be more accurate to say my understanding of monastic training, because everybody's going to have a different understanding of these things. And since uh, people who live here uh, choose to live here because uh, they want to live here, nobody's here under duress, I assume that it's because you find the uh, manner of training here. Is uh, suitable and useful for you. However, sometimes it's uh, surprising to find out that we don't understand each other, and uh, so, for the sake of clarity, it'd be good to I feel it'd be a good time to just go over this area again. Uh, also, uh, somebody mentioned to me recently some of the whole subject of training. Somebody said, "Well, where are the people who who are, who are looking who want to be trained anyway?" And the implication behind that was well. You know, people don't want to be trained and and that, that caused me to uh, consider what was going on because in my own mind I have a very clear sense that uh, training is ongoing and and what constitutes training and uh, then I wonder well perhaps you know perhaps people don't people don't think about the subject certainly they don't think about the same as I do and and perhaps don't even think about it at all so it is important as far as I'm concerned it's a very important matter and I think it would be good for us all to understand what the expectations and the understandings around training here are. Ah. I know for myself, my very first experiences with meditation on retreat and living on a beautiful commune with beautiful people in Australia, you've heard me talk about it before, and as soon as I did my first meditation retreat, it was such a profoundly inspiring experience to discover what the mind can be like, how how beautiful the mind can be, how, how uh, lovely life can be, without smoking drugs and uh, getting up to lots of uh, other things that were very popular at the time. And I was very, as I said, inspired by these insights in the first meditation retreat I had and, and really wanted a lifestyle that would... Uh, conduce or support or accord with this perspective that I discovered was possible from meditation. Um, But I realized that the people I lived with were not they weren't bad people or lovely people but they weren't inclined in in the same direction as I was. And, And so it was with this in mind that I actually went traveling in the first place. I went traveling off to Asia and hoping to find a monastery or some monastery somewhere where I would get some encouragement and support in this area and eventually I did end up living uh, with Tate in uh, Nongkai province in northeast Thailand and for my first wasa and again enthusiastic commitment to practice and some very valuable insights that really established the foundation of my practice And, and that hasn't really changed in the 28 years I've been as a bhikkhu, that first year was profoundly important and giving a foundation of understanding what constitutes practice. However, I I realized also very clearly at the time that uh, although in meditation I might be able to uh, get a handle on things, get a perspective on things that uh, served what my heart was committed to, as soon as I came out of meditation and interacted with other people again, I was all over the place. with the other monks in the monastery, but also with the lay people or with the sensory world in general, if I went into town or whatever. that, In other words, my personality, my character got in the way. It didn't accord with my experience uh, that I would have in meditation, and It it didn't accord with what I aspired to be like as a person. And reading some uh, translated notes of talks about Ajahn Chah at the time, I got a clear impression that Ajahn Chah was very much into training use that expression. Ajahn Tate I'm sure would have been earlier on but at that stage he was already very ill and wasn't available very much. So it was with this in mind that I clearly went to live with Ajahn Shah and I asked and wanted to be trained. I realized that whatever insights I might have in practice, the container, the conventional uh, aspect of my being, a uh, body, speech and conventional activity of mind were not in accord with these insights and, and I needed training. I was, I was Very, very clearly. The image of of training a horse was very vivid for me. The spirit of the horse, of course, one can admire that that wild, passionate energy of the horse. One doesn't want to destroy or damage the spirit, but you do need to actually form a cooperative relationship with that being. And that takes training. Mm -hmm. So it was with this in mind that I I, I went to go and live with Ajahn Chai, and certainly it was a case that he he was very into training and quite explicit and and handled difficulties on the conventional level of people living together very head on, he wouldn't shy away from them. So I've carried this understanding with me and and um, I try to communicate this and when I talk with people who ask to come here and like with uh Jyotika and Jayamano having been here as Anagarikas and Samaneras and and then asking for Upasampada and I tried to make it very clear that this would be entering a different stage of training. And it's my understanding that because they, they wanted this, that they asked for their for Sampadon. Likewise with Samonira Apamano coming here from New Zealand. and It's a very nice place. The weather's much nicer in New Zealand than it is in Northumberland. and uh, He had quite a cushy number there, actually. Uh, getting his own way most of the time, really. Um, but uh, from his perspective, as he communicated to me actually getting his own way all the time wasn't really what he wanted and didn't constitute training and so he asked to come here for this purpose and there are many dimensions to it there are many stages of it many aspects to training the, the um, we can we could just assume that t- training is going to happen without paying conscious attention to it and but I don't think that's altogether a helpful attitude because we if we assume that well then we can misperceive situations sometimes people uh, people uh, sometimes who've lived here have criticized me because I don't come to morning chanting They so, say, why don't you come to morning chanting? You expect us to go to morning chanting so well, it's all right at the level of responsibility of some of the junior members of the community to to think like that but when you're the abbot of the monastery there's all sorts of responsibilities and expectations that you're having to handle that perhaps as a new member of the community you don't understand and and don't appreciate, don't just know what it's like to be dealing with the, the trustees who run the monastery and have been here running this place for over twenty years and and being in touch with the whole worldwide community of senior monks and speaking on the phone and emails with all the difficulties that are going on and and being in aware of the financial obligations and the commitment to the training issues of the junior members of the community, as well as one's own commitment to personal practice. and So my reading on keeping a balance on these things is that actually it's good for me to have that time for myself early in the morning. And But that's not because I've given up training, that's because as far as I'm concerned that's how I keep my training going, and the stages of training I think become clear if we consider this training matter more consciously. You can see that Anagaraka join the community having a look and checking what it's like to live under the added pressure of restraint What comes when you've got a bunch of precepts and how does it affect you as individuals and how do you fit into the community. But there's no expectation of a commitment as an Anagaraka. There's a certain amount of freedom. You still have your own money and and you can uh, go home, it's much more easy to go and visit. And that if you decide that you want to make a life commitment, lifestyle commitment to this training, then the, uh, well, the next stage would be the stage of training of a Samanera, where there is a renunciation, you no longer have use of money, and that's a big thing. And you're also putting on the robe, you're part of this noble tradition that's been around for two and a half thousand years. And you become, you draw closer to the community and, and you feel closer and with that felt involvement and participation in the community there's a, an added sense of pressure and expectation and as somebody was saying earlier on tonight you, it's cranking up the pressure and so that's a different level of training there's a, a new level of precepts and a new feeling of responsibility and then if one commits to and is accepted in one's commitment to the bhikkhu life and is given to Pusampada. Well, the first five years of training as a, a Naoka bhikkhu is another level of training. And at this level of training, there's the having to learn to use the Patimoka rule. In the five years of learning to use the Patimoka rule, the first year or two is, is quite difficult and, and you know, often most people need quite a bit of support to check to see how they use the rules, pick them up too tightly. Worry too much, try to not worry too much, and then worrying too little, and and getting it right takes a good while. And but hopefully after five years, there's a certain sense of having integrated the principles of the Patimoka rule, the principles of restraint, the principles of renunciation. These principles are like they're encoded in the precepts. All these all these minute precepts that that from one level seem so fussy and, and, and even irrelevant that if we hold them with sufficient respect and sincerity and cons- apply ourselves to them consistently what actually happens over the years is that uh, the principle encoded in these precepts is internalized. And I can remember my own experience of this after having been a bhikkhu for five years and going home to New Zealand for the first time and. A very vivid experience of walking down the street and walking past a pub and just just wanting to, just the, the thought of a cold lager, and the thought arose in my mind, just went in and went out like that. No effort. It didn't take any effort at all, because the perception of myself as somebody who drank lager, went from a pub and bought lager, it just, it just was irrelevant. In other words, the the values or the cultural values of a summoner, or the perceptions of, of a samana, samana sanya, who was sufficiently well established, whereby actually one didn't have to worry about such things, that effort. Uh, it, was, it was effortless, actually. It was a, a great consolation. Oh, right, that's all those years of training, uh, help in this area. So after five years, and, and one becomes a majima bhikkhu, and there's another level of training, there's a certain amount of, of encouragement and to find your own feet, to move around, to make your own decisions. In the first five years of training as a bhikkhu, you you have some doubts over any of the rules, and you know is this an offence, is this not an offence, and some of the rules are are so refined, and our intention is not clear, and and if you, you have a doubt about it, it's absolutely appropriate to go and see the teacher and say, I'm not sure about this, can you help me, and to expect the teacher to help and to deal with your doubt and to clarify it for you. After five years, it's uh, quite likely that, um, depending on the individual and the circumstances, but it's quite likely that the, the teacher might just reflect your doubting mind back to you and, and encourage you to sort it out, at least for a while. And Then, of course, you know, if we can't sort it out, well, we go back to the teacher again and, and, and get the help that we need, and it's perfectly appropriate. But there is a different level of training that's a nāvakā it becomes a majima bhikkhu. And I mean, yeah. you, you will be aware of the issue around the use of the internet and, and our don't use the internet, don't go on it without permission under any circumstances. And, and then Majima Bhikkhus after eight wasas yeah. are allowed to you think, Well why why should it be? We're all equal. Why should somebody just you know, I mean some of you actually are even older. But not having not been in the training for so long. There's there needs to be understanding that exercising restraint for an extended period of time counts. It makes a difference. These things make a difference. It's not it's not just a technical detail and it's not just a a matter of opinion. These things actually count. They make a difference. And so this is why the, it is recorded, it is spoken about in the teachings. These stages of training: the samanera, anagārika samanera, Naraka bhikkhu majjham-bhikkhu, tera, Mahatera. and mahāterā. so to be conscious of this, I think, can be really helpful. And to be not not be conscious of it can t- can lead to misunderstandings. If we have it clear in our minds that there is this matter of training whereby our character. Needs to be worked on, to be brought in line with dhamma. Well, then it's much easier. It's much easier to locate the willingness within ourselves. Mm-hmm. The willingness to make the effort that's needed. And I would say probably that this that willingness is really mm-hmm. uh, willingness is really what it's about. Cultivating willingness our mind gets peaceful and still and calm and clear and a sense of well-being and we know what's what and we feel great but then when we go out and we start engaging socially and getting active in body and speech and the mind speeds up and then we come up against something that we know we shouldn't do but how to actually not do it or not say it and there's this force, this momentum of my way, but I want to say it, I want to do it. And there's not a willingness to go against it. Or if there is a willingness to go against it, even though we want, to, we desperately want to say something, we desperately want to do something we know is not right, if there's a willingness there to stay true to our heart commitment to practice, then we can restrain our action of body and speech. And that's what training's about, or one aspect of what training's about, and cultivating that willingness to restrain. And that's what a lot of what the precepts are about. And we do need help in that. As you know, I'm saying, sometimes we newly ordain and we pick up these rules, and we can get so worried about them, and just fuss over them, and lose sleep over them, and get anxious about the most minor thing and uh, start having panic attacks over, over breaking the minor rules and, and then feel terribly guilty about it. Well, then if we actually talk to other people who have been in the training for a bit longer than us, we find out actually quite a few people have that kind of experience, that, that many of us project onto these external structures far too much authority. But then it's true for some people they don't they don't actually value them, they just dismiss them. Some people are very idealistic and say, Oh, these training rules, Simon Erid Bhikkhu's, Nawaka, Majima, it doesn't really matter, it's just all convention and it doesn't really matter, it's just a waste of time. It's a pity it gets in the way really I'm just in this so that I can do my own thing and do a lot of meditation. I've heard that as well. And such people actually are not a source of harmony usually in the community, because a lot of these precepts are uh, put there because the Buddha's wisdom recognised what conduces to harmony, concord, well-being in the sangha. So we may not see the uh, we may not see the actual value of the rules. Like that example I've given a number of times of me knocking down that wall at Chidhurst House. We were careful and we took a. a Piece of the wall away at the ground level, and could see right through to the room next door. And, alright, oh, it's not a supporting wall, but just to be checked, just to be sure, we take a level out of the top of the wall and look right through, and you see the other room, and say, right, okay, definitely not a supporting wall, knock it down. And then the next morning, the Ajahnamara comes in, and just in time, we get the acroprops in to hold the whole roof of Chittor's house up. It was a supporting wall, the, the cross beams, the, were hidden behind the wall, and they were leaning. They were supporting against the outside pillars, and we hadn't seen that. We didn't know that Victorians built houses like that. We didn't see the the actual structures and and how the structures were supporting the overall house, and so we're quite happy to knock the wall down. though it can be with some of the training rules, we can be quite happy to cut corners and and bypass things, feeling quite sure that uh, that we know what we're doing. But from the Buddhist perspective actually there's a lot more to life than we can see and so he encouraged us in keeping the patimokkha rule consistently as a training until we see clearly for ourselves. Mm -hmm. I can remember Ajahn Chah saying something to the effect that actually for his own practice he doesn't really need to be keeping the training rules, but he does keep them as an example for others. Or that example in the scriptures of the Arahant who whose mind was pure and he knew he couldn't commit any faults because he didn't have any kilesa and wasn't going to go to the Moka. but uh, the Buddha went over and criticised him because of that poor judgement he didn't know that his choice to not go to the Moka would have a detrimental effect on the rest of the community. So the Buddha set up these training rules and it's true that he did say that uh, to Ananda that, that some of them could be put aside but Ananda didn't ask which ones and and Nanda got criticised badly for that but it's in this tradition the tradition of the elders, the Theravada tradition it was agreed at the time that none of the trainings will, training rules would be changed that we would adhere to all of them so we have a responsibility uh, in this tradition for the sake of harmony, and concord and also for the benefit of our own individual practice to apply ourselves to these rules but from the perspective of training our relationship to the rules does change and so, as I started off by saying, it's good to be quite conscious, to have an understanding that this is a training we're involved in. We get more skilled at using the rules as we go along, like like learning how to drive a car. When you first learn to drive a car, you've got to really think about, okay, right foot on the accelerator, left foot off the clutch, right foot off the accelerator, left foot on the clutch. And in the beginning, you know, you whir the engine as you push them both down together, or... You, you put the, the right foot on the left foot on the brake and you're supposed to put the right foot on the brake and we, we've got to really apply a lot of conscious attention to it. But after a while you can, it becomes embodied. The body learns the whole body mind learns how to drive a car and we can be driving along perfectly responsibly listening to the radio or having a conversation at the same time and still drive very well. Also it is with the uh, acquainting ourselves, becoming familiar with the training precepts. But it does take time. Or other areas, like, for instance, impeccability, or honesty. The, a lot of the training that we go through is about learning to understand the principle, satya. You know, What is honesty? Yeah. In the everyday world, there's a, a very high tolerance of dishonesty. And yet as we apply ourselves to this path of insight, investigation, clarification, penetration of of inherent reality, of truth, of Dhamma, we see that we have to be scrupulously honest with ourselves. There's no room for for deviating from that. And if we if we can't be really straight with ourselves, really honest with ourselves, then practice doesn't go past a certain point that Honesty or straightness or directness, integrity counts for a lot. As does restraint. Restraint counts for a lot and we, we cultivate it. So we, we cultivate honesty and so some of these training rules that we have and we have this rule about keeping medicines for seven days and so somebody gives you this exceedingly good jar of pure manuka honey and and you keep it and, and then it it's six days or is it seven days or, or is it eight days? And say, oh well, no, no, it's only six days. And uh, Are we being honest with ourselves? Is it true? Now, f- you know from one perspective, I mean for goodness sake keeping a jar of honey over seven days is hardly a whole matter of world-shattering significance. Mm-hmm. But the good thing is that something as small as this and as insignificant and irrelevant from the bigger picture is something that we can actually uh, really train with. But if we don't understand that this is a training, well, we can dismiss it and think, "Oh, this is going to make me neurotic. This is going to really drive me spare, I'm going to be compl- become a completely impossible person." I remember a young chap coming to see me once in Anagarika, who came to see me just before he left and said, "Oh, this 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 place is driving me mad. I'm getting more neurotic by the t- by the day." And and he related to me this incident whereby at one o'clock that afternoon they found a bit of food stuck between his teeth and he just cleaned it and swallowed it. And then, oh, I've broken my precepts, eat in the afternoon. And got all anxious and upset and felt like it ruined his meditation because he lost his purity. And then he saw what was going on and then he concluded, oh my goodness, this, this monastery here is making me neurotic. Well, there's one way of seeing it, but another way of seeing it would be to see, well, actually you're already neurotic and this training is showing up, where we're projecting our authority unskillfully, projecting our power in a way that's not helpful. The, the precepts are there to help us be mindful, they're not there to, to make us obsessed. And So we can see something like that, some example like that, and, and then blame the rules for making us suffer, but that's not the point. Uh, to help us, like in the area of honesty and peccability, yeah. learning how to be really straight. Can we do it? Or is it that force we say, oh, this doesn't matter? No, this is just a silly little thing, don't worry about it, push it aside. And then five years later, it's still there, niggling away, and, and we haven't tidied it up. And in training, we actually learn to catch it sooner. As somebody once said, a thousand times later we catch it sooner. Or as in my time living with Ajahn Tate, when you get the first get an appreciation of what practice involves about this need to be mindful in the present moment, here and now, judgment-free awareness, training just means learning how to be there quicker for it. How to get more agile, how to get more willing. In the area of relationships in the community, also the whole area of respect is something that is not just for us egalitarian westerners, is something that's needed, it was also something the, the Buddha saw was, was needed in, in his time as well. Different members of the Sangha coming from different parts of society and some people from higher classes and lower class and for bhikkhu ordination class was irrelevant, however people still had preferences and prejudices and brought them with them. And so training required or implied that we actually address these preferences and these difficulties and and uh, own up to them and see what's really going on. And, and if it's not held up well then it's something that can be there for a long time and can be an obstruction to practice. So like in our situation in Thailand where most monasteries you, you go into the the shrine and you shrine, and you bow three times. And Ajahn Chah observed that we were also conceited that he made us bow six times as a training in the body. I mean, it's, it's not we can all see well our respect is a good thing, but but in our bodies, which are conditioned by our our minds, our previous mental habits, we can still be holding a rigidity, you know, an arrogance, and a stubbornness and a resistance. And saying, I'm not going to. I'm not going to bow down to you. Mm. This was uh, very much my experience in the beginning. I I could bow down to Ajahn Chah because I thought he was wonderful, but certain other people of certain nationalities, I had tremendous resistance. There's a sense of, I'm not going to do it. I don't want to do it. Well, we can push past that idealistically and make ourselves and say, good monks are willing to bow to anybody. and So we can force ourselves to bow. And performing stiff neck, stiff back, performing the ritual of bowing to another monk and trying to look good in the process and not being aware of our inner reaction. That's bad training, that's not training. That's conditioning, that's programming ourselves. In the beginning we might try to do that, but that's certainly not training. Training is actually doing what's asked of us without complaint, without criticism, applying ourselves, giving ourselves into it with more willingness, and then feeling what we feel, feeling the reaction and becoming aware of it. And then when we feel it, when we're in touch with it, well then we can see it, we can understand it, we can see eventually, we can see beyond it. We can see, what is this that doesn't want to bow? I mean, monks have been bowing at each other for two and a half thousand years, so why shouldn't I bow to this monk? He's senior to me, he's been in the training longer than I have. I know how difficult it is to be in the training. Mm. One year in the training is difficult, two years is difficult, ten years is difficult. And here I was, who was having trouble bowing to somebody who'd I was one year or often just my first month, and he'd been in the monk for eight years, and I was having great difficulty bowing to him because if what? Well, because of the training has actually helped to see this: what, what is it? What is this resistance? Training in the body is very important, and what we're involved in is not merely a mental exercise. Sometimes you can read books uh, that come out of Asia that are, uh, talking about meditation and presented and translated as as mind training. As if that's the essence of Buddhism. It's certainly not uh, what the Buddha taught. The Buddha taught a whole body mind training or preparing ourselves for life. And so, in our community here, the situation we find ourselves in, the, the training structures are aimed at this. And so, the various training structures we have here, like the uh, the, the meal comes before the meal, and the meal is just put by the senior monk whoever that is put by their seat and then handed out after the meal. We don't sit around and open our mail, exciting. Well, these days, of course, most of the mail is junk mail or bills. It's not interesting anymore. So maybe we might even change that training structure. But uh, it used to be that you'd get this mail from all your old friends and it was interesting to, to have to sit there and wait until after your meal was difficult. But this is a constructive difficulty. Can I sit here and feel what I feel like? I want to open my mail. Or the same with the food. You wait till the bell rings. When the bell rings, then we can start eating. You're sitting there, and maybe you've been working hard, and you're hungry, and you think, why doesn't this, just stop talking to the lay people and just ring that wretched bell so that I can get into my food. Well, what is that? Uh, And what really is that? And not just intellectually asking that question, but really feeling into our bodies, what is that? Passionate heat that resents waiting to get what I want. This is this is training, and there are ways of applying the training structures. And uh, some of them, some of the situations that I've lived in over the years, where training structures and skillful means have been imposed upon the community in a way whereby it left quite a bad feeling because the person who was imposing the training structures uh, remained very aloof and and very unavailable and I felt that that was, um, I think for for a lot of of Westerners anyway, we already have enough difficulties with authority structures that when the person who's doling out the uh, the uh, training structures is unavailable as a person then that makes it extra difficult. From an ideal perspective, of course, if, if we were perfect, then we would just bow into it and take it and work with it. But sometimes it's also too much. And I know that in many situations I've lived in, I, I was and I remain of the opinion that that there is a way of, of, of applying the training, that, which is very unhelpful. So when I speak about these training structures of, you know, with the meal or, or with the mail or with the use of the internet or with asking people to work in the afternoon or various things that, that uh, we may not want to do, I'm not uh, handing them out in some sort of authoritarian way whereby I think it's my job to force you to become something that you don't want to become or even force you to become something you do want to become I don't see it like that I don't see it as my job to force anything but rather as the leader of the community who is available as a person to everybody in the community uh, I feel it's my job to give the guidelines to establish the guidelines clearly It's, it's also been my experience that living in communities where there are not clear guidelines the absolute opposite of what I mentioned a minute ago where there's a militaristic enforcement of of structures from a detached authoritarian figure. The opposite is where there, are, there aren't guidelines and, and the people at the top of the line just say, oh, figure it out for yourself, and there's a lot of confusion, and, and particularly if there's junior members in the community, a lot of disorientation. A simple matter like, for instance, preparing the breakfast. The Anagarikas come into the community, and my understanding they're coming here because they want some support and guidance in, in uh, developing their spiritual life. And very much the body, mindfulness of the body, first foundation of mindfulness, is, is very much to do with training in the spiritual life, and, and uh, yet often the Anagarikas are just immediately given the job of making the first meal of the day. Many of, the, many of them have never even lived by the eight precepts before, and here they are, they have authority in the kitchen to prepare the breakfast, and and not given any guidelines. It's just well, whatever's in the larder. That's I've heard that one given out to the Anagarikas. Whatever's in the larder, just something simple. And so these uh, Anagarikas just go ballistic, absolutely bananas, all night thinking about what they can put in the in the. The idea is it's some sort of some sort of porridge or gruel or something. But I've seen them. Boiling up all yesterday's rice, throwing in some oats, throwing in Mars bars, peanut butter, jam. Well, he said anything is in the larder, and then of course the people at breakfast are quite sick and and irritated by the Anagarika, who thought he was just getting creative and and being helpful to the community. And um, well, I I have um, complete sympathy for the Anagarika and not a lot of respect for the leader of the community who who didn't give sufficient guidelines. So the guidelines in this community regarding breakfast it's not because I'm a control freak that I insist on having breakfast the way it is. We have this power porridge, fresh made yogurt and fruit if it's available each morning and that's it. And the Anagarikas don't have to think about what they're going to do. They don't have to think about it at all. It's very straightforward. And when it runs out they just put in an order to the kitchen manager and, and the Sri Lankan community generously provide for us to have more. And it's very simple, it's very healthy, and we can maintain the understanding that, as the Buddha said, food is medicine. This is not something to get all creative and distracted over. This is a way to nourish the body in a healthy manner so that we can actually live life in a mindful, conscious way. So these training guidelines it's helpful to stop and think about the principles that's behind them whether it's restraint or honesty or respect for elders and and then if we are being careful then we can inhibit our reactions in a skillful way not just in a willful way yeah. we can inhibit the the way we talk with each other and Perhaps considering, well maybe I don't see what this structure is for, and then just wait. And, and that helps very much, it helps in community. And you don't have to be always justifying things or even understanding things. I remember somebody once had a go at Ajahn Chah because he insisted that that we all uh, well, we'll put put all our food in the bowl. The Dutanga practice which we observe here, that if you're going to eat it, it's got to go in your bowl. If the soup is, is, is too stiff to drink, then you've got to pour it in your bowl. If you can drink it out of your cup, that's fine. Otherwise, everything goes in the bowl, and that's a traditional Dutanga practice of this tradition and, and something that we keep here in this monastery. And Yudhajn child would sit up there on his platform all these different trays of food would be brought to him and take a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. He would put it in his bowl and eat it, but he would be picking from these various things. and one day somebody had a go at him and said, how come you insist on us just having one serving, putting it all in our bowl and, and you don't do it? And he said, oh well, it's it's okay that you question me, but you know, there might also be other understandings behind it. In, case, in fact, in this case, what it is is that the food that I take from goes back to the lay people who gave it and they are very happy because I took something from it and it, it inspires them and encourages them and, and that's meaningful and valuable for them and and this was not a perspective that the, the, the critic had of what was going on, they just thought oh well he thinks he's beyond training. So it could well appear that way and sometimes when you're in the senior position in a community it's taken a lot of effort to live this life and to stick it out as you observe, it's quite obvious not many people do stick it out and so as the years go by you tend to forget sometimes what it was like as a junior member of the community. Hopefully, you don't forget the principles of this life, and you can still give guidance in, in terms of training. But uh, you do forget sometimes what your actions might look like, and and so and I think this is, is true for for all of us. I just think this is how it unfolds. So to also be willing, at whatever stage of training we're at, to withhold and and, and restrain ourselves in our assumptions about what's going on, and and just to see well, what's my response to my stage of training, where I'm at in the community, how am I being encouraged to practice? And If of course any of us living in some place where we don't trust the the leader of the community and don't trust the place they're coming from, in the way that they um, impart the training, well then you you question it for a while and if nothing changes well then the best thing to do is to find somewhere else to live. But to also uh, be restrained and, and, and withhold our assumptions before we jump to conclusions about things. Because our preferences, which is you know, what the whole training is about, is helping us come to see the reality of our preferences. Our preferences are really, really deluding. You know, when, we're, when we're possessed by, by something, yeah. like a dislike, if you dislike somebody there's a story in the scriptures about this uh, monk who was a hunchback and he was apparently very ugly the other monks just according to their preferences were very critical of him but it turned out actually that he was an arahant the Buddha uh, admonished these young monks and so you should be very careful about who you're criticizing just because according to your preferences he's ugly and you don't like him actually his heart is beautiful his heart is pure and free is not somebody you should be criticizing, but our preferences cause us to make jump to all sorts of conclusions just because we don't like the look of somebody or or somebody's accent, the way they talk. If you you don't like somebody's way they pronounce language or or their mannerisms or whatever, dislike can can uh, distort our judgments. Or like, if we, there's another aspect of training that takes a long time to really come to terms with. and When you put on this this uniform of the celibate renunciate Buddhist monk then you elicit a lot of projection from people. And in many ways it can be quite skillful. And people expect us to be pure, expect us to be wise, expect us to be helpful. And Again, speaking personally, this was one reason why I became a monk. The, the expectations of the environment actually help elicit from me those things that I really want to develop. I want to develop these things. and So it's very helpful to have these expectations. And it's natural. I mean, the symbol of the Buddhist monk, or, or any monk, you know, shaven head and sandals, it, it elicits a certain uh, feeling from, from people. And and if you are really committed to training and, uh, and applying yourself to it, people notice it, they feel it. You know, the, the effort to be restrained makes, makes you attractive, actually. People, people approach you, people see you've got power. If your meditation develops, they see you've got authority, you've got strength. You can get a little clearer and articulate, and you can start sounding very wise and inspiring to people. And, and people are very happy to project their spiritual ability out onto you. And uh, it can feel very good, and if you're not clear about it, and in the beginning you can get very intoxicated by it. You can start thinking, the, all these people admiring me so much, I really must be somebody. And we can start, and you know, it does happen uh, monks and nuns can get into a position of actually feeding on this adulation, this, which is really just a projection of people's spiritual ability elicited by the symbol of uh, the renunciate. And when it first happens, you can make some serious mistakes. And, However, if you're living in a spiritual community like this, where there's a clear training, and there are those who've walked the far- path longer than we have, we're well, very fortunate, and we can share our experiences with each other, and then as the months go by and the years go by, we can actually turn it around and, and learn to find this situation where everybody's bowing to you or telling you how wise and wonderful you are. It can... We can help you learn to deal with your show up your conceit and show up your arrogance. And in the beginning of practice, we probably most of us are you know, a bit a bit stubborn and a bit arrogant, and we can idealistically jump to the conclusion that we should get rid of our arrogance and should get rid of our stubbornness and become compliant, nice, good monks. But that's again a bit idealistic. And the reality is, this is how we meet ourselves, and this is what we bring into training. And if we're training consciously and carefully and consistently, well, our arrogance is not an obstruction to training. Actually, it's the stuff of training. Mm. Arrogance, when we when we come across it, and we our training takes us to the point of of actually feeling and recognizing arrogance as it's happening, we start to see it as a symptom of conceit, and it's a guide point. It's a it's a a pointer towards mind states that are ready to be let go of and actually arrogance is fine. It's, it's like a lot of other the suffering that we go through, like loneliness as well. Celebrate renunciate life, monastic life, the mono life will for sure take us to experience of loneliness and if we are still committed to our preferences and to manipulating the rules and manipulating the training structures just to get what I want, well then we come across something like that that's so thoroughly disagreeable we'll perceive it as an obstruction to our well-being and just do anything to get rid of it. But really, actually, loneliness is not a problem. Loneliness is not a problem. Loneliness is an indicator. It's a symptom of where we need to go deeper to find a state of real contentment in our aloneness. We are alone, despite our, you know, our preferences and longings for intimacy and memories of the pleasure of intimacy. And actually, we are alone and we are individually responsible for our lives, but, as I'm sure we've all experienced, we, we put a huge amount of effort into avoiding the reality of our aloneness. And the momentum of our avoidance of, a, of our actual aloneness eventually puts us in a state of delusion which conditions this feeling of loneliness. But our training will for sure guaranteed, to take us to a head-on encounter with the painful experience of loneliness. And if, as I was saying, we, we've not been training consciously, then we can jump to the conclusion that this suffering is there's an obstruction to practice. There's, maybe there's practice like that guy who swallowed a bit of food and out of his teeth You know, thought the practice was making him neurotic. We can think, oh, living in the monastery is just making me lonely. Well, it's not living in the monastery that's making me lonely. It's the, the way we view life. that's creating conditioning this feeling of loneliness. And our training actually will contain us if we're... Rightly, consciously committed to it our training will carry us into a relationship with that painful experience of loneliness whereby we'll be able to follow it back to that dimension within ourselves which we're longing to become one with again that place where we can be contented in our aloneness so these different aspects of training are um, something to reflect on and I would encourage us not to jump to conclusions about things, particularly in the early years <coughs> when, and particularly in a non-Buddhist country like this where this is very unfamiliar. This is by worldly standards a weird thing to be doing. But from the perspective of a Buddhist culture this is a very noble thing to be doing and, and a virtuous thing to be doing. We don't in this society get a lot of support I don't get a lot of encouragement. In fact, we can get quite the opposite. And so our worldly minds can be supported by the way the newspapers that come into the monastery, the way they talk, or or the way visitors to the monastery talk, or if you go home for a visit, the way your family talks. You can, And you see so many people are talking like that and say, well, obviously there's many of them and there's only a few of us, so you can get the feeling, well, they are right. That's why we have the structures that um, encourage uh, novice monks to stay in the monastery more and not go out a lot, because the perception of a renunciate or the samana sanya is not yet internalized. And when it is, as I was saying before, when it is internalized, well, we're protected. And myself personally, I, I've been a monk now for twenty-eight years, and I can travel around the world and sit in international airports around the world and not just because I'm thick or insensitive and don't notice what's going on around me. I'm very aware that people are looking at me and so on, but actually it doesn't really worry me very much. I, it's fine. I mean, this is what I'm doing. And I have confidence in it. I respect this way of life. I value this way of life. But I do remember the first times when I went out, it was much more difficult. Personally, I had the good fortune of spending my first five years as a monk in Thailand in a Buddhist culture where, even though I was outside the monastery, people were still expecting me to behave like a monk. And that was very helpful. That doesn't happen here. When you leave the monastery, people are expecting you to bang drums at the very least and ask for money and behave be totally weird. They certainly don't expect you to behave like a bhikkhu because they don't know what a bhikkhu is. So the uh, training structure we have here is that Naoka monks are encouraged to not go home very often, um, until they really internalise the the feeling of what it feels like to be a bhikkhu. Can I actually exercise restraint, even when everybody around me is watching videos, eating and drinking, and 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 just behaving in normal worldly ways? No. Can I avoid having all my worldly tendencies triggered? No. If we really know that we're we're safe, well then it will be fine, and we won't compromise our training principles and. We won't bring the community into disrespect. We won't fall foul of the training precepts and then come back and have to inconvenience the whole community and go through some bariwasa gama or something and have to meet with 20 bhikkhus to get yourself purified again. And so these things happen because often because, uh, not because people are bad, but you know, sometimes it happens because pe- the, the path of training has not been followed properly. So when I, when I, like with the two new bhikkhus, I say, so, you know, don't ask to go home for the first year and that may conflict with your preferences but it's not just based on my wanting to control you, know, I want you to understand that there's an intelligence behind this, there's an understanding behind this and and then maybe maybe it's alright to go home for a week and come back and see how it was and, and then for another year and go home for a week and then maybe in the third year it might be okay to go home for two weeks and but as as a Nawaka monk, the understanding needs to be that this is the priority, this is the commitment, and it is a training that we need to apply ourselves to consciously. After five years as a, as a Majjima monk, then then it's um, in this community here, uh, the majima monks go away and have time out for a month every year, and I don't mind it, it's none of my business what they do, and I, I'm not even very interested in what they do, unless they want to talk with me about it, I, I don't consider it my business at all. And I, that, at least that month out, if I'm still a committed member of this community, to still have a month out each year is I think very important, very useful. And then for uh, Terras to have six weeks out, and then Maha Terras uh, two months out, and then as you know the, the Abbot of this monastery gets three months out. He thinks that's very important and you may disagree, and you're certainly welcome to talk to him about it, but he has managed to survive in this job for uh, so far in this community here, which has not exactly been an easy job for 12 years, and I think there is, uh, there is uh, some evidence that this strategy has worked. If you monks don't take time away, the community becomes overly dependent upon the abbot, and sometimes the abbots become overly burdened by the projections and expectations of the community, the immediate community and the extended community. So personally, so long as I've been here, it's always been evident to me that I need, if I'm in the position of serving the community as Abbot, I need three months a year out of being the object of other people's projections. However, this guideline, as with the other guidelines, is is an approximation, this is not an absolute. These rules have grey areas as well, these guidelines have grey areas that they're offered as supports for the training. And I think perhaps that's the most important thing that I'd like to share this evening, that even though the training conflicts often with the momentum of my way and my preferences, it's, it's not there just to irritate us. It might irritate us, it might offend us, but what is it that gets offended That's what we're here to look at. Thank you very much for your attention.